Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. The theme of season two is Unprocessed, where each week we deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Horan. Hi, everyone. I am John Horan. I am the oral historian for the State Archives of North Carolina, and I'm here with two very special guests. We're talking to Bob Kane, the former editor of the Colonial Records of North Carolina, the second series. And then we're also here with Joe Beatty, the former editor of the Colonial Records of North Carolina, but this time the digital series, and current research supervisor for the Office of Archives and History. So I don't know if you both want to say hi. Hi. Hi, John. All right. And that's, uh, that's the two of them. And we're here today to talk about foreign records in the North Carolina archives. So I thought we could start by talking about why North Carolina has a foreign collection. Well, it's because the state sent at state expense researchers overseas for a number of years to uh, collect and copy documents from overseas. Uh, there was, in fact, a, a project in the 1920s to collect transcripts, handwritten transcripts. They are now in the archives. That's called the English records, not to confuse things too much. They were the English records and still available. And there also uh, there is a collection uh, of Spanish records that were collected years and years ago, mostly photostats about which I know absolutely nothing since I don't speak Spanish. But uh, then I uh, was sent over in 1969, and I worked there till 1975, my wife and I, trying to find documents relating to North Carolina and having them either Xeroxed or microfilmed. That sounds like a pretty good gig. How did you land that? <laughs> the grace of God, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, it was a very happy circumstance for me because I had spent a year in England prior to that, doing my dissertation research. And I wanted in a very bad way to get back. And this, I sort of got tired of college teaching and wrote the head of archives and history at that time. And he said, just to, you know, perhaps for an archivist position. And he said, I see, what, I see that you've been in England. Would you like a job searching for records for the Colonial Records Project? And I said, yes. And so that's how that happened. Did you ever get any insight as to why they were doing this? Yeah, there was a... a project going, a, a publications project that began in 1961. That was, that was and several volumes have resulted from that. In fact, a number of volumes have resulted from that publication program. And the then head of archives and history, a man by the name of H.G. Jones, wanted to um, also do the overseas thing for reasons best known to himself, but that it was, that it was logical to uh, collect overseas things for eventual publication in uh, the series. Is this something other states were doing at the time? Well, yeah, Virginia was doing it. They had been in the business for several years before we got in. I think I don't think they did any uh, paper copies, but, but microfilm. Now, as to other states that were doing it, I, uh, at that time, I don't know. Previously, there had been a number of states previously being in the, say, late 1800s, early 1900s, and, and later, collecting, uh, publishing, their own colonial records, so they had to, uh, I presume, send people over to do that. Only Virginia and us, I think, were doing that. Now, do you uh, agree with that, Drew? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I looked around a little bit, and mm -hmm. Virginia started their overseas collection project in 1955. Yeah. So they were just a little bit ahead of us. It looks like over time, a few other states did maybe a similar thing, but I think we were in a small group of states that were vigorous in doing this. You know, as Bob said, you know, making a real commitment, it's one thing to say, oh, we want to gather documents from overseas. It's another thing to deploy somebody to literally sit in overseas archives for, you know, five, six years and scrape the archives and see what you can find. Yeah, I think that's a real commitment. Virginia and North Carolina, to my knowledge, were you know among the first to really do this seriously. Yeah, so that's a great entree into wondering exactly what you did overseas, Bob. Yeah, I, I uh, worked in a number of repositories, mostly in London and uh, mostly in what was then called the Public Record Office, which is now called the, the Archives of Great Britain. They had a, and have, of course, a massive collection so I started going through them. Quite a number of them had already been done years ago. They're the first series of colonial records uh, started in 1886, and the then editor of of that series, who was later head of the, who was actually head of the Ku Klux Klan in North Carolina as well, and and Secretary of State, he sent people over, but nobody has ever found the transcripts that that he that resulted from that. He obviously got quite a few because. There are a lot of those uh, documents in the Colonial Records of North Carolina, the first series, and, colonial, and state records. It was continued into, uh, into state records in the early 20th century. So, but there were a lot of, of groups, they call them record groups, in the archives that had not been even looked at. And so those were particularly fun for me to, to go through and, and, and find some things and uh, make copies of them and bring them back. It's just sort of interesting to me that you would go into these records and, and that people hadn't looked at. And I'm wondering what kind of goals did you have? How did you set, you know, yeah. a path forward for yourself? Good, good question. Well, I sort of went through, well, I looked uh, at a list of their, of their different series and sort of uh, led on a few that I thought might be productive for us for one reason or another. For example, the Admiralty records, there was a naval presence in North Carolina, British naval presence, uh, before and during the revolution. So I thought there might be something there, and there was quite a lot, quite a lot there. Yeah, that's one example. And for things that I looked for, I looked, uh, of course, for things saying North Carolina. If it made a direct reference to North Carolina, that was, that was <clears throat> the thing I was chiefly after. But a lot of things included North Carolina by inference. For example material about southern Indians, particularly the Cherokee, that kind of thing. I think, you know, Bob's just described one of the great examples of, of the supremacy of human intelligence over artificial intelligence, right? That, and, and this is one of the reasons why I think Bob was so successful in this project. And, you know, a lot of that credit rests on his shoulders for having been there and done it. But knowing as good researchers, good archivists, good historians know, you can't just look for a thing. You have to look for the things that are associated with that thing also. And this is one of the challenges I think researchers face today, especially as more, I'm going to wax philosophical here for a second, but especially as more people approach the archives through 
digital portals rather than going into records and going into card catalogs and things. You can direct a really pointed search at something and get a really narrow set of results. The real gems come when you zoom out a little bit. And you know the results of Bob's work really show you know what you can get and how you can succeed by being able to think through, hey, what is it that I'm actually trying to find? And scanning the landscape a little bit. It's been really helpful you know, for me and I think for those of us who've used the foreign records, uh, we've seen pirates, for example, or admiralty stuff, you know, North Carolina, especially in the colonial era, so much of it depended on maritime access, right, and, and life of and around the water. And so, of course, the admiralty courts are going to be involved in that. Of course, we're going to find things in those records, which might not be readily apparent by the way the finding aids are set up or by what you would think just to do a narrow search for North Carolina. For my part, I think the Indian records are probably a great example of that. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Bob, but I think, you know, the records dealing with John Stewart, he was the, the Indian agent for the Southeast, and the, the people that he's dealing with are deeply involved in North Carolina business and North Carolina politics. I, I don't know that Stewart spent much time in North Carolina. I don't know that you would easily find him just by looking for North Carolina, but what he was doing, the negotiations that he was involved in, and, and yeah, the, his day-to-day -day work really, I think, deeply impacted what happened in North Carolina. That's a good example, by the way. Directly relevant. I think that another sort of interesting point about all of this is what the foreign collection that you worked on, what does that say about North Carolina's history? How does it inform who we are as North Carolinians now? Well, you know, it's, you can always say something like it showed how we could overcome obstacles for one thing, which we did as a, as a people. We were sort of looked down on by particularly Virginia and South Carolina. And we were looked on as a, as a refuge uh, in the early 18th century and late 17th as a refuge for debtors. So we had to sort of scrabble our way up to, to make a showing. And it was hard to do if you only had one ocean port. I'll double down on that in looking through the documents collected through this. It is sort of shocking at times to think how North Carolina survived the, the earliest decades or maybe even the earliest century or so of its history. Correspondence back and forth to England frequently talks about the challenges here, the lack of currency, the lack of marketable goods to, to fuel the empire. You know, the empire depends on or expects that colonies will provide valuable goods back to England, but then they'll sell for a profit. And this is how colonies are supposed to do their part for the empire. And for a long time, North Carolina struggled with this. And anything that you could produce, like Bob says, anything that you could produce, how do you get it out? There's one good ocean port, and then there's people fighting their way over the, the sandbar across the Outer Banks. You know, Ocracoke is the only reliable inlet in that time, and reliable at times seems like a, a little bit of a stretch. So there's all these challenges, and sometimes it's really surprising that the colony even made it. One reason we did make it, I think we had pretty good governors, particularly in the mid uh, and later 18th century. Dobbs, 
whom you know quite a lot about, uh, was I think a pretty pretty effective governor. He had his quirks and all, as all of them did, I guess. And uh, his successor, William Tryon, had to um, deal with quite a few problems, religious problems, and also the uh, regulators, which were mostly farmers, who uh, got tired of being ripped off by the courthouse gang, as they saw it. And so they rose up, uh, had a nice battle of Alamance in 1771. So he had to deal with that. He dealt with it well and went off to New York. And then the next one down, Josiah Martin, also had problems to deal with. North Carolina was slipping out of the empire's orbit bit by bit, not as much as some of the other uh, more northern colonies, but it was, it was definitely doing that. He did the best he could with his limited resources to keep, the, to keep North Carolina in the empire. So as I say, I think we had a pretty good run of governors. And before Dobbs, we had a man, I think he served longer than any other governor, colonial governor in North Carolina, Gabriel Johnson. He oversaw quite a lot of interesting interesting things and kept a steady course. You know, I would agree with Bob. One of the interesting things that you see in the records with Dobbs, for example, is that before he agreed to take the position of governor, he negotiated with the crown to make sure that his salary was paid from London and not paid out of colonial revenue, which is how it was supposed to be paid. Because his predecessor was thousands of pounds in arrears. His predecessor, Johnson, had not been paid to serve as governor for something like five or six years. But Dobbs made sure that he had a secure funding source before he agreed to take the position. And every year in his correspondence, you see an, a letter back to London. Just a reminder, I expect my, uh, my payment for uh, 1,000 pounds from London and they would dutifully write him back and say, yes, sir, we remember. And every now and then they would, you know, somebody would be like, are you sure this is the right pay arrangement? He's like, oh, yes, we agreed to this. <laughs> that shows a little bit of the challenge, I think, of life on the ground here in the colony that, you know, they, they struggled to pay the governor. And and so these records that, that we're talking about, these four governors and what we know about them, how much of what we know about them comes from your work, Bob? Well, in in percentages, I would I would be not be able to to really say, but a lot was already known in the first series of colonial records. But there were, in fact, I, I would imagine the the great bulk of of it, what we know about them, except in one instance, and that's the last governor, Josiah Martin. His papers are in the uh, British Library. I had copied virtually all of those. So a lot more is known about him now than we knew before. And one gets quite a, quite, quite a sympathy with, with him, actually, although he was a royal governor and all that. And I was wondering if you could kind of tell us what you mean by that. When you, when you unveiled those for the first time, you're reading these papers. What are you thinking? Well, I, was, I wasn't uh, expecting to have much sympathy for one thing because he was not notably one of the more successful governors, that's saying the least. But there were a lot of family papers in this, and Josiah was really overshadowed by his older brother, uh, half-brother actually, who was a high official in the British government. His father was always looking to that brother instead of Josiah. Josiah was sort of put down in various ways, he didn't marry like his father wanted him to, which is a big deal in those days. 
he had a child to die while he was governor here, which is, you know, always a blow. But I think he was overall, as far as the decisions he made, he didn't he didn't have that much leeway to keep North Carolina in, on the straight and narrow as far as the British Empire was concerned. I think he did a good, a, a good job overall, and I think he's deserving of sympathy when one reads reads those papers. Is there another sort of collection or set of papers or series that when you sort of open them up that on a day you said, wow, I've hit the jackpot? <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there is, um, there are a couple that I'm particularly fond of. One, the Admiralty Papers, which uh, include the usual stuff like letters from captains on station in North Carolina and lieutenants as well, because they had to send reports to London. These papers include a lot of commercial details. But they also include a fair number of personal letters. And one that struck me particularly was, was a doctor, uh, Zerail uh, Waterman. His, he was writing his, his, his uh, relatives in uh, Rhode Island. He was a ship's doctor, and he had been captured and uh, his letters taken. And this was a quite interesting little picture of Edenton at the time. That's where he was. Another series within the Admiralty Papers that I wish people would use more would be um, the ship's logs, which record, among other things, all the, the weather when the, the ship was off North Carolina coast or in, in port, and also some, uh, occasionally some very interesting details about political developments, particularly toward the time of the, of the revolution, uh, just waiting for some, somebody to do something with. I found those extremely interesting. Yeah, those kinds of records are always fascinating to see what people are buying, what people are trying to sell, what people are willing to pay for these things. Yeah, I think commercial relationships are always really fascinating. It, it points out who's who's bankrolling things and, and how business gets done. Yeah, I think there's some interesting parallels between when you look at what people have and have access to and I think says a lot about kind of day-to-day life. One, one thing that I ought to interject here, and, and this is sort of in the commercial line too, there's a quite large body of so-called loyalist papers. There were a number of loyalists in North Carolina during the revolution, Tories they're often called, and uh, they had some unpleasant things done to them by the, by the Whigs, by the, uh, by the Americans. I like Mainly, it was it was confiscating their property, and many of them had to leave the the state and came back after the war to try to recover some of that property, and with mixed results. But the amount of detail in these loyalist papers is is quite remarkable. They were making a claim to the British government. The the British government voted a certain a sum to compensate the loyalists. Uh, who had lost out in America. So these, these papers are related to that specifically. And one thing that I, that has been used to a degree is um, lists of debtors in North Carolina. These Tories, these, sorry, loyalists would have a lot of debtors on their books when they had to flee. A lot of locals, North Carolinians on the books. And there are many, 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 many names there with how much they owe, where they are, this kind of thing. Somebody years ago, a very competent researcher, years ago, published quite a few of, of these. 
in the North Carolina Genealogical uh, Magazine, which is very useful, but there's still so many to be done, and so many names, so many unique names. You wouldn't find them. Many of these you wouldn't find anywhere else. So that's, uh, that's one. Another thing I'd like to mention, just throw in here, is um, we also have Scottish records. It gets a little confusing. I mean, wouldn't British records include Scottish records? Well, not for our purposes. It's separate. And it was, uh, these were done um, after the research in England was done. We hired researchers, uh, very good researchers, to, uh, to do the work there. And they came across some quite interesting things, a lot of it relating to Presbyterianism in North Carolina, trying to find ministers to come over here, and believe me, nobody wanted to come over here. It was pretty much the same with the Church of England people. It was very hard to find people who were willing. Such was North Carolina's reputation. There was that, and there was also um, things relating to immigration, as you might expect. Uh, there was one thing that I found quite remarkable, and that was a complete inventory of of a ship that had brought immigrants in. And that was, I think, quite valuable as far as tools and weapons and fabrics and all kinds of things like that. Thanks for picking that up. I appreciate that. So you're sent over there. You're going through the process. You're, you have these research questions. You find things that are directly in response to those questions, and you find things next to the things that you didn't expect to see yep. and, and all of that. But yep. What what's what's the material itself? What what how does it look? What is it? Is it it's paper, obviously, but but what kind of paper? What 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 are these materials that you're touching? They're they come in various forms as you're presented with them, usually in a in a box, brown cardboard box, and they're in in folders, usually in folders, and you take the folder out and you remove the red tape, and the documents are there. And many of them are loose, you know, just loose papers. Sometimes they're bound up into little booklets. Sometimes they're bound up into larger books, in fact. So it's paper. In fact, not always, because I did have to deal with, with parchment a few times in some uh, early 1580s uh, records that I didn't find. They were, had already been found by uh, somebody else, an Englishman. But I, I, I wanted them, they, there were no copies, there were no uh, facsimile copies in North Carolina, so I thought that would be a good thing to have. So and then, after I identified the documents, uh, I would put a marker, a uh, piece of paper, in where they were, the whole volume or box or whatever it was, take them to the copying room. It's altogether different now, but in those days it was... You handed it to uh, some people there, and they took it away to be Xeroxed or microfilmed as appropriate. And then, if it was, if they were paper copies, if it was Xeroxed, I had to send them back. They didn't send them back. I had to, and it was a lot of fun, if you like that kind of thing, getting them up into parcels to send back to North Carolina. And the British Post Office has some had at that time some rather strange regulations. One of which being, if I if something was sent internationally, it would have to be there would have to be a wax seal on it, and it would have to be done with a peculiar device, as they put it, which I guess, in, if you're of <laughs> a certain class of people, you'd have a signet ring. I didn't I didn't particularly I didn't have a signet ring, so I just found an odd-looking thing that had a that I thought would work on it, and it seemed to it seemed to do the trick. 
Well, that was a fair bit of fair bit of bother to uh, to get the thing up and put them between masonite boards and um, yeah, but it had to be done. So you had to package up and send these copies. Yes. And in that process, you had to find your own little like mark, your own little oh yeah mark. yeah uh, yeah the peculiar device. That was the way the regulation uh, read, and I don't think people who worked in the post office. I don't think paid a heck of a lot of attention to what kind of peculiar, how peculiar my device was, because it seems seems to have passed. As I started to learn the collection, and it was fun for me to look through the kind of meta collection, you know, the data about the collection, the reflecting the work that Bob did. Obviously, I enjoyed looking at the records, but looking through the you know, Bob's correspondence back about the things that he found, that there are a number of big mailing envelopes in the collection that, that say across the top in, in the familiar uh, British font on Her Majesty's service, you know, official mailing envelopes, uh, probably from the National Archives that Bob yeah. would have stuck things in to, to mail back home. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I miss those. I miss those. I'll bring you one. Uh, <laughs> but it's fun to see those kinds of things because I think as you're pointing out through these questions and, and our discussion here, it's one thing to have the this body of records. It's another thing, like how do you get there? You know, how how does a person, how does a state decide, oh, we're just gonna go over there and grab everything that's ours. What? <laughs> How do you do that? And so we, you can look and sort of trace some of those trails. It's pretty cool. Yeah, well, I should here mention um, some private help that, that we got with that project. In fact, a lot of private help from an organization called the Carolina Charter Corporation. North Carolina had a tercentenary commemoration in 1963. That was the 300th anniversary of the granting of the first charter. To um, to North Carolina, to Carolina, and uh, so we had a, and we had that charter. So we we're uh, South Carolina doesn't we have it? So there was a celebration that year, and they was really a big deal. I mean, schools took part in it and all this kind of thing. And uh, the thing, the charter itself is housed in a in a case, uh, bomb-proof case. Uh, it's supposed to withstand even a, a, an atomic bomb. We, I, hope it, I hope it's never tested. But anyway, the charter is there as a sort of continuing thing, a sort of spinoff from that. This the program was launched, the overseas program. Uh, actually, not no, not the overseas program, but the publication of the second series of colonial records. And then further along, when uh, Dr. Jones um, got the idea to send somebody overseas to look for for things that. Should be, you know, should be found perhaps for publication, perhaps just for um, placement in the archives. And I don't think I mentioned what happened to the copies that came over. They uh, were processed, have been processed, and put in the archives for use by the public. The public has access to all of these things, including well, the microfilm and the uh, paper copies. And they are described, there's always a better description that can be done of anything, but we keep plugging away trying to get them better described. But I think people who really want to use them uh, will have, will have, won't have that much trouble. The archives has a brilliant site with its uh, identifying its uh, different branches and, 
activities and all that kind of thing, including the uh, foreign archives. Yeah, I want to step back for just one second. Uh, you know, Bob mentioned the Carolina Charter Corporation that arose out of this, and you know that is a that is an important point that the state set up this project and then over time, so Bob did this initial collection, you know, spanning sixty nine to seventy five. Um, but the state continued to collect records up through the 90s, right, and in, in fits and starts as funding uh, would arrive as, as new questions came up. And the Carolina Charter Corporation, an independent nonprofit organization spun out of the tercentenary, has been really crucial in that over the years. I think it's important that we call out their support. Also, the uh, federal government, through its National Endowment for the Humanities, gave two quite sizable grants for the program. So that is much appreciated. This is this is all fascinating, and I appreciate that you're calling out these places as as good stewards, and they're helping you to complete this project and yeah. continue to complete this project through the '90s. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you set me up like this because I I asked you earlier, what do these records say about North Carolinians? now based off of who they were in, in in the colonial period but i'm interested now in this and this is a follow-up question to that with that in mind what does the fact that you were got this funding and so, continued support over a number of years to go over there what did, what did that action say about where north carolina was and who north carolina north carolinians are that's an excellent question it says that north carolina through its representative through its philanthropic uh, organizations, through its governmental agencies, cares a lot about history. That's the bottom line. I mean, but from, from the time of, of Saunders' first series of colonial records in 1886, there was no problem with funding. I mean, those were, they were massive volumes that cost a lot to produce. And uh, never have I heard of anybody saying, why did we spend all that money for that? I think North Carolina may, it's not unique in that way, but we are um, probably better off, better than some states would be in that way. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's a, a fair characterization. When the chips are down, I think the state and its citizens shows their willingness to support a real investigation of history and a real appreciation for history. Yeah. And I think that, that matters. I think that's true too. I was laughing because... Um, Saunders was very successful and didn't get much pushback. Although, as I recall, I think you're telling of it, Saunders pulled a great sleight of hand that he said to, he found these old records, <laughs> colonial records, and he said to the, to the legislature, it would be really great if we could do something with this. We just need a little bit of support. And he got the, legis- the legislature to agree to it, but the provision was basically that we agree to the to publishing these documents and other related documents as the librarian sees fit. He had made himself the librarian, but they didn't put any limit on the amount of money to be spent. So he just started spending money and they were like, but wait, you can't do that. And he's like, Hey, you all agreed to do this. Come on. We can't abandon the project now. I've already started. Yeah. He was very influential as secretary of state. I have a question for you, Bob, Um, a, a mechanical question about getting the documents back. Were you doing 
most or all of this correspondence by mail? Did you make any phone calls? I'm trying no. to imagine the state springing for a no. probably $20 phone call. <laughs> I can't remember a single one, which is, of course, would be no matter at all these days, but I can't remember a single one to the, to the archives about what I was doing. Or can I remember, I can't remember one that we sent, uh, that my wife and I made to our parents because things were just not, not done in those days. They were, it was hugely expensive and we didn't have a whole lot of money. So, no, we didn't. Where did you live in London? In Hampstead. How did you find that place from being overseas? Well, that's another story. Uh, my wife's parents were missionaries in Thailand and they met some British people there. They weren't missionaries. And they kept in touch. Uh, they told, my, my in-laws told them we were looking for a place to live. She said, I know somebody who has a room in Hampstead, in London. And she said, uh, I said, well, that sounds good. And we got our one room with, <laughs> with us and our uh, one child. We later graduated to two rooms. So that we felt quite the, the thing then, you see. And how did you get to work in London? Uh, underground, usually. No, well, no, no, it got later. First, before I was able to negotiate the uh, buses, I took the uh, underground, which is dead easy, you know, you get off at whatever station you want to. But then I, I uh, got tired of the underground because it was so dirty. And um, so uh, I started taking buses to find out how they worked finally. Never took a taxi. Never took a taxi. Never put it, the state to that expense of... of uh, of renting a taxi. <laughs> Not even once to get it, just to say, to get into the black cabs? <laughs> no, well, I, I took them otherwise, but not at the state expense. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah, I, I really I really appreciate both of you sitting in and chatting with me about our foreign collections. It's been a lot of fun for me, and I hope it's been good for both of you. Yeah, it has. It has. It's been great. Good to meet all of you. Well, I know Joe already, but the, the two of you, good to meet you finally. And you're doing a great job, I think. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, John. It was good talking. Bob, it's always nice to see you and talk with you. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. Connecting the Docs is a podcast created by staff members of the State Archives of North Carolina. Special thanks this week to our guests, Bob Kane and Joe Beatty. To our producer, Brooke Chuka. To our former producer, Randa McRae. And of course, to the person behind the voice you hear at the beginning and end of every episode, Judy Allen Dodson. I'm your host, John Horan. Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs, Unprocessed. Make sure to visit our website, connectingthedocs.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People at ncarchives.wordpress.com. For more news and information, please visit our website, archives.ncdcr.gov.